Hey, TMC followers, if you'd like to support this podcast, one of the ways you can do this is leaving us a one-time donation by clicking the donate tab on the top right-hand corner of the mondaychristian.com homepage. Enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here are your hosts, Ezra Beyer and David Hartkopf. Live in studio, I am here with, no, I'm just kidding, Ez, it's great to have you in Cincinnati today, sitting awkwardly close around one microphone in my very bare new office. I enjoy reading, you wouldn't know this by the shelf I have back here. I know. Uh, but I do have my Turabian manual, so shout out to any of my professors that might be watching. I use this often, so it's good to have you here, homie. What's going on? I know, just the other day we had to do even pictures for the podcast oh, as no. well, so that was great fun. You know, yeah. usually it's easy, like with my wife, arm around the shoulder, boom, yeah. good to go. And it just, it took us forever to get that done. But yeah. hey. Hey, so here's on. the truth. My family, we have like, uh, my immediate family, at least historically, we have a large personal bubble. And so sitting uh, like this. I'm invading your space. This is like four feet closer than I want to be to him. But uh, <laughs> we're really excited today about our guest. S, why don't you give a little background on our uh, friend, Richard Stearns? currently serves as the uh, former president, World Vision USA, and just has an extensive bio. Like, like this, he is one of the greatest interviewees that I think we've brought on just from in terms of not only bio, but the, the life journey yeah. he's been on is just, just amazing. So we'll get into all this. He was at Parker Brothers, 33 years of age, I believe it was, when he became the CEO for them. And that's, that's kind of a young age. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> Works at World Vision as the, the president CEO for uh, about 20 years. Yeah. And again, there's so much to get into. But here's kind of my thought as, as we get into this. There's probably a number of people I know that are listening, watching. You're driving to and from work. And you're maybe climbing up the corporate ladder, as Richard has for years and years. And you're kind of wondering, what is my fix? How do I, how do I find significance out of, out of life? And... Um, this book that we're going to talk about today uh, really, I, I think, gets at, at the heart of that. So anyways, uh, without any further ado, let's go ahead and welcome Richard Stearns to the podcast. Thank you. How are you doing, guys? Well, doing, doing excellent. And thank you so much for taking some time to come on. Uh, I know with writing a book, you end up probably doing a lot of these different podcasts. So thank you for your, your time. Oh, happy to do it. The book is Lead Like It Matters to God. And so here's just an obvious question before we get into the, the meat and the heart of it. Um, how long have you been fascinated with the subject of leadership? You mentioned something in the very intro that sometimes you don't exactly enjoy reading leadership books. So why is that the case? Yeah, it, it's actually kind of an ironic thing because I, I haven't read a lot of books on leadership. And uh, it, it was probably later in my career that I started to think more about uh, the issue of leadership and why leadership matters and what kind of leaders do we want to be, especially as, as Christian leaders. And uh, so I, I would say maybe the last 10 years of my working experience, I started to, you know, kind of uh, clean out my attic, if you will, of what are all the leadership lessons I learned along the way, you know, as you sh shared earlier, uh, working for both secular companies, um, regular workplace jobs, and then 20 years in a Christian ministry after that. 
And uh, what did I learn about leadership and, and why is that important? And I, I think what I came down to was that the leadership books that are out there were not scratching uh, my itch as a Christian leader, because I really believe that Christian leaders, whether they're working at Amazon or Microsoft or, you know, in a church, I, I think there's a whole different kind of calling to leadership for uh, for believers. I have a question for you just right out of the gate here. Um, follow up to that. What do you think is the biggest thing that the the books that you were reading maybe were, were missing or misinterpreting? What How is your book different or what were some of the things that you were noticing in some of the material that you started reading that you were like, I wish they'd say more about this or I wish they wouldn't talk about this so much. Can you comment on that? Yeah. So uh, most leadership books uh, are kind of performance based. How can I, how can I perform better? How can I accomplish more? How can I, how can I be more successful? They're really books about how can I be more successful in my career? They often have like new kind of leadership paradigms or management paradigms that uh, you're, you're asked to absorb and maybe master a new skill set and then take that what you take what you've learned in those books and then apply it in your workplace. So very outcomes based, very uh, performance based. And uh, I wanted to get really at the philosophy of leadership. You know, I wanted to get at some of the why questions. You know, why do we do what we do? Uh, why is leadership important? How does this relate to my faith? Uh, you know, I might be selling software. Maybe I'm a financial advisor. Uh, you know, I may be a teacher in a school. Uh, but how does my job, what I do eight or 10 hours a day for 40 years, how does that relate to my faith? And how does God want me to behave in the workplace? And what should be my, my goals before the Lord uh, as I go into work uh, on a Monday morning? Um, in, instead of what the world is constantly telling me about achievement and performance and success. When you think from a leadership perspective, so I have the opportunity to write with a number of uh, influential business leaders, and they often talk about the switch and the evolution that's taken place over the last 40, 50 years plus. You know, Of course, you could go way back to the Industrial Revolution, the relationship between the employee and management and how that's shifted. Mm -hmm. um, how, when you look back over the last 40, 50 years, what are the major shifts that you've seen taking place in, in the workplace environment? Well, I think there have been a number of them, but, you know, back in the day, if you will, I think leadership models were more authoritarian. Um, it was, you know, here's the organization chart, you know, I'm here, you're there, do you have any questions? It was kind of a top-down uh, leadership model that, uh, and things like aggressiveness and, uh, you know, there, there was a book in the 80s, I think, uh, by Chainsaw Al Dunlap, who uh, who was famous for going into companies with a chainsaw and like firing 40 percent of the employees, restructuring it and spinning it off and selling it and walking. It sounds away like a winner. Yeah. And he'd walk away with a hundred million dollar bonus. And back in the 80s or maybe it was early 90s, you know, people were reading his book like I want to be like Chainsaw Al. Right. I want to be like this guy. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so that was kind of the old school. I'm the boss and you're not kind of leadership um, top down. I think today the most successful leaders leaders are collaborative. You know, they're they're consensus building leaders. They're leaders that build really effective teams and leverage all of the skills and gifts of the people on the teams. And, and so, yeah, there has to be a leader, but in a way of kind of thinking of everybody as equal contributors, but somebody has to be in charge uh, and make the final decision. 
So I, and, and I think especially, you know, my time in the Christian ministry, there's an expectation of much greater participation in decision-making. Uh, people don't just want uh, it to come down from on high, like the 10 commandments, right, to Moses. And uh, they, they, want, they want to say, they want to participate, they want to feel that their opinions have been heard and valued. If you don't, you almost check out. Yeah. I feel like, I don't know. Yeah, for sure. So what, is there a difference between, so some of the books, as and I privately have kind of joked about, he, he does quite a bit of writing, and sometimes it almost sounds like uh, people that are even into consensus, they are into consensus so that, you know, if you, if you do this right, you can juice more out of these people versus um, causing the people that you collaborate with to flourish in their in their in their slot, so to speak, on the bus or in the, in the gifts that God has given that they bring mm -hmm. to this place, is there a difference there? Because I feel like sometimes it's like if you're nice to people, then you'll get more out of them. Um, yeah. Can you can you comment on any of that? Yeah, I think one of the main main theses of my book is that the difference between a Christian view of leadership and maybe a secular view of leadership. You know, we've probably all had supervisors or bosses for whom it was all about them, right? It's like, I'm the boss. I have my career goals. I want to be successful. I want to get the biggest possible bonus. I want to get promoted. And so the people around me are just like pawns on a chessboard, right? You're just there for me to leverage. Uh, I'm going to use you to achieve what I want to achieve, you know, kind of a selfish view of leadership. And sadly, there are a lot of leaders like that in the mm. world. And that leadership style is is pretty prevalent you know i've got five kids you know who work in professional settings and i hear stories about their bosses with would curl your hair you know and uh so this ego driven all about me kind of leadership it, sadly is out there in a lot of places in a lot of people and um the christian leader though the very different perspective that i'm not there to achieve my personal success my goal is to help the people around me achieve their goals and be successful. I want them to be successful. So I'm more like a coach. I use the metaphor in the book of an orchestra conductor who yeah. doesn't play the instruments, but just wants to bring the beautiful music out of the people uh, that work for her. And, and so that's a very different approach to the players uh, on your team than, hey, I'm the boss and I've got my eye on the corner office and, uh, you know, I'm going to whip the horses until they get me there, and uh, I'm going to use people. Uh, and I think the Christian view of leadership is, no, these people around you are made in the image of God, and they're mm. uniquely gifted. They're uniquely yes. gifted, just like the musicians in an orchestra. And if you can bring out their God-giftedness, help them realize their God-given potential, even if they're atheists, they, they have God-given potential that they don't even recognize, and you can help bring that music out of them. And, and then... What happens is people working in that environment are happier, uh, they're more productive, and guess what? You as a leader will probably be more successful too because you've unleashed the creativity and the, the giftedness of the people that work for you. Several weeks ago, I did this little pool because it, it was something one of my clients said sparked some interest in me, and they said one of their points was you cannot be friends with those you lead. And now obviously there's some clarifying comments with that, but I'm not going to clarify that. And I didn't clarify that when I put it on my Facebook page. And, and I said, so do you agree with that, that you can, uh, you cannot be friends with those 
that you lead. And it was interesting, you know, I received dozens of responses and that was kind of an interesting subject. So I'm gonna throw that to you. Uh, as the leader, can you be friends with, with those that you lead? I think, you, yes, you can. And in many ways, I think you should be friends with the people you lead. But you have to be careful that that friendship doesn't bias your decision making, right? Because ultimately, you have to make decisions about people and about programs. And, um, you know, I've had to fire people that were my friends, you know, <laughs> and uh, because of, you know, they weren't a good fit for that job. They weren't accomplishing what they needed to accomplish. They, I, I felt they might be better off in a different place, you know, kind of a, like a plant sometimes needs to be repotted because it gets root bound. You know, I think that happens sometimes to us as people, wherever we work, we might sometimes need to be repotted into some fresh soil where we can, you know, flourish uh, better. Uh, but I, I do think uh, you can be friends, but you have to, be, there is a line there where you have to still be objective about uh, the task and the organization and you have to, uh, you know, make the best decisions for the for the greater good. And uh, sometimes that will mean going against, you might not have to fire your friends, but you, you might have to go against their opinions or uh, overrule them on some decision. You know, those are things that are difficult. I used to say at World Vision, it's, it's hard to pray with somebody in devotions on uh, Monday morning and then give them a performance review Monday afternoon. Yeah. Um, you know, so it is a, a difficult dance. It's a delicate dance. Mm. Do you find, so you've been in positions that have a lot of authority is with them. Um, do you find it difficult in those positions to be authentic? And here's what I mean. I, I think sometimes leaders can struggle because they have so many, so you as a president have so many constituent groups that you're responsible for. And so you have your employees and then you have uh, shareholders and then you have people that are buying the product. You have all these different constituent groups that you have to kind of have an eye on as you sell a product or uh, provide a service. And if you're not careful, you have like these different caricatures of yourself that you can <laughs> sort of present to people. But if, if you ever got somebody from those different constituent groups in the room together, they would all, it would be very difficult because, um, Maybe they, they would all have a different idea of who you, you were. And do you, I'm asking this so poorly, sorry. But do, <laughs> do you find it difficult to be authentic or uh, do you feel that's important? What are some ways maybe that you can keep from being a character? And, you know, I think Jesus was the most authentic person that's ever lived. And he was, he, he was who he was. It's not that he didn't exercise wisdom when he was talking to somebody. But as a leader, how do you um, develop the courage or the 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 guts to just be who you are no matter who you're with yeah no that, that's a good question and um you know i'm a big believer in trying to be authentically yourself regardless of the audience but on the other hand you also need to know your audience right so an audience of employees you speak to a little differently than you do an audience of donors let's say uh who are outside the organization you know giving giving to the organization you might speak differently to uh uh you know at world vision we would have meetings with usaid for government grants and you know you put on a little bit of a different hat there uh, and know your audience but you i always tried to still be authentically me you know i didn't want to be i didn't want to have five contradictory selves 
Yes. And I had always worried about keeping my identity straight. Like, who am I today? You know, who am I? So I'm the same person. I just might use different language depending on the audience uh, that I'm speaking with. Um, just like, you know, you might use different language speaking to a, a group of high school kids than you would use speaking to a group of college professors, right? Yes. You, you'd use different vocabulary and different uh, euphemisms or metaphors. And uh, but hopefully you'd still be yourself. You know, you, yeah. you'd try to communicate differently, but you'd be yourself. I love I love your word there. Sorry, not being contradictory. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so if you got them in the room, you might say the same thing in different ways to the different groups, but... Mm -hmm. There would not be some at the core of it. There wouldn't be a different idea. Yeah, uh, I, you know, there, there's, there's kind of a corollary to that. You know, when I was young and I was as a Parker Brothers, you know, coming up through the ranks, you know, at first I thought, well, what I really need to do is emulate the guy who's in the corner office. You know, I'm going to mm -hmm. be like him. I'm going to, I'm going to try to speak like him, dress like him, lead like him. And what I realized is, whenever you try to be somebody you're not. Uh, it's probably a failing enterprise. You're you, you're going to be a poor version of that other person, right? You know, you're, you're because it won't be authentic. It won't be who you are. And and I finally came to terms with saying, look, I'm just going to be the best leader I can be, uh, being myself. You know, with using my my personality, my proclivities. Um, I want to build my leadership on something authentic instead of trying to imitate people. Um, there are lots of different successful leaders who are very different and you'll drive yourself crazy trying to emulate this person or that person uh, when what you really should focus on is being a, the best version of yourself that you can be. If you have a great sense of humor, be a leader who leads with a great sense of humor. You know, if, if you're a, a highly creative leader, you know, lead with your creativity and delegate, you know, other kinds of tasks to other people, finances, IT, those kinds of things where you're not very gifted. Um, but be authentically you. I want to get into your story in particular. And so let's do this. Let's look at the first 33, I guess, years of your life leading up to being the CEO of Parker Brothers. And I, I'm particularly interested in, you talk about having an alcoholic father and how that impacted you. And then I thought it was very interesting. You talk about going to Cornell and how much you had to compensate for that because there were areas you were behind in education and how that probably drove you to succeed. And so those, those years leading up to becoming, I guess, the success story, what were they like for you? Well, yeah, I, you know, I, the short chapter in my book, uh, a little bit of autobiography, because people need to know a bit about the author who's, you know, giving them all this advice. But yeah, I grew up in a, you know, kind of a broken home, alcoholic father with an eighth grade education. Uh, my mother never finished high school. So you know, our, our house wasn't littered with bookshelves, kind of, kind of like the bookshelf behind you, you know, except we didn't even, <laughs> we, we didn't even have a bookshelf. <laughs> and um, uh, so my parents split up when I was about 10 years old. And, you know, in the divorce, there was a bankruptcy and the bank foreclosed on our house. And for the next number of years, my mother and my sister and I moved around from rental apartment to a rental apartment. So a lot of insecurity there. But, you know, somehow uh, in my child brain, I... I managed to understand that uh, education was the way I could overcome this. You know, I didn't want to be like my mom and dad. I didn't want to relive their lives because I could see that they were not doing so well in the way they lived their lives. So I, I had my heart set on education and uh, 
I, I had this dream of going to an Ivy League school, and the one closest to me, I grew up in Syracuse, New York. The one closest was Cornell down in Ithaca, about 50 miles away. I only applied to one college. Uh, fortunately, I got in and got a scholarship. And uh, But, yeah, when I got there, it was like I was with all the wealthy kids. You know, my, my sister said, this is where the wealthy educate their young, you know, <laughs> a place like Cornell. And a lot of them had been to prep schools, you know, Phillips Exeter, Andover, Chafee, you know, different schools. <clears throat> and so I had to really scramble not to drown those first couple of years at Cornell uh, to kind of keep well, up with the other students. But well, why do you think you went to education as REL L and not something else? Well, I, you know, I realized that, you know, what, when you think about it, what are the things that can really change your circumstances uh, if you're born into I wouldn't say we were born. In, I was not born into poverty, but I was born into economic, you know, uh, insecurity, I, I guess yeah, you might have yeah. it. And, um, you know, there are other routes. I mean, uh, Bill Gates started Microsoft after he dropped out of college. So, you know, there are other routes to success, although he did go to Harvard <laughs> uh, for at least a year or two. And um, but I just felt like, you know, the way to get a job in this world is to learn some skills and get an education where, People are willing to pay you for what you know and what you're capable of doing. There are other routes. I mean, you know, uh, I don't have any problem with somebody that says, hey, you know, I love to fix things and I'm going to become an electrician or I love building and I'm going to become a, a contractor or a carpenter. Yeah. Or, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we each have, you know, to look at the skill sets that God's given us and say, what's the best use of my gifts and abilities? But yeah, but education seemed like, you know, in America, that was a ticket to, uh, uh, to a, you know, a real career, if you will. One of the quotes you have in your book, I'm just going to read it. It's a little bit lengthy here. You say, uh, reflecting on your early life and so the success that you had, and I, I, wanna, I want you to touch on that, leading up to becoming the CEO of Parker Brothers at age 33, you write, if I'm brutally honest with myself, I had become somewhat en en enamored with my early success I'd experienced. While my identity was that of a follower of Jesus Christ, my career was a part of my life that I tended to manage apart from God. Sure, I tried to be a good Christian in the workplace, but I hadn't fully connected the God I worshipped on Sunday to the work I did on Monday. Man, that's, that's good stuff right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, well, why did that happen? <clears throat> well, you know, I think... Um, I think one of the reasons I wrote this book is this phenomenon I like to call compartmentalization, right? Yes. We often compartmentalize our lives. So I'm a Christian at church and at home and, you know, on the weekends. But let's say I go into a pretty toxic kind of work environment on Monday morning. And, and uh, you know, there's a whole corporate culture there that's unhealthy, maybe. Um, uh, there are all kinds of characters in the workplace that are maybe not thinking out for your best interest because they might be trying to use you or jockey around you or get a promotion ahead of you. And so you're in this environment that's kind of dog eat dog. And you, you can very quickly conclude that, well, look, you know, my faith as a Christian is not going to play out well in this culture. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to be the odd man out, right? I don't want to be, you know, somebody that just everybody thinks is weird in the workplace. And I know there's been research done how, organizational cultures shape and change people that you become the culture of the organization in which you work you you know you you immerse yourself in, a, in an organizational culture and if you're not careful you will become more and more like that culture if that culture is aggressive and angry and 
every man for himself, uh, you will become more and more like that unless you resist that temptation. And so what I wanted to say in this book is we absolutely have to take God to work with us, right? That we need to take our Christian faith into our workplace, not in an annoying way where you're knocking on people's cubicles saying, uh, did you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? And here's yeah. the four spiritual laws I'm going to take you through. But just to to clothe ourselves with the character of Christ and to be motivated by the love of Christ, to be uh, Christ's ambassador in that place. And as you know from reading the book, uh, my life verse, I had it stenciled on my wall at World Vision, is 2 Corinthians 5.20 that goes like this. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God is making his appeal through us. Now, when you think about that verse, God, we are an ambassador for Christ wherever we are, wherever we live, wherever we go. Um, and and it's, it's as if God is making his appeal to the world, to our coworkers, through us. So our job, I say this is a book that the title on your business card, you should cross it out and put ambassador for Christ. Because if you work for Amazon or Microsoft or General Motors or wherever you work, that's your real job as, as a follower of Christ. You, you, you don't compartmentalize your faith and say, yeah, my faith is the most important thing in my life, except when I go to work. And then I, I check it at the door and I pick it up on Friday night when I go home. Uh, no, you need to take that faith and the, the behaviors that your faith commands and, and take that into the workplace to be salt and light in the place where you work. And that's your mission field. And um, part of that, you know, in my book, I write about 17 values that should characterize Christian leaders. And one of them is excellent. So yeah. you want to be excellent in your workplace using the best skills and abilities you have. But you also want to be humble and you want to be caring. You want to be generous. You, you want to be forgiving. You, you, you want to care about the people around you. You want to be a loving uh, co-worth of brotherly love, you know, and, and those things. And we're, we're called to carry that into the workplace. Yeah. Something I'm struck by your mention of compartmentalization. Just, I don't know that we've always done a um, a good job of this in the church. As we talk about sacred and secular, and as if there's these like yeah. uh, div divisions between all of these things. I think one of the things that characterized the early church was just their sent outness into the culture. They they're propelled out of the sanctuary to do good. I mean, to your point, someone that's excellent in their work, or even is like slightly better than average, that shows up. That's honest. Um, right. I feel like the bar is so low in our culture. Somebody that shows up and smiles. I smiled at the DMV lady today. I was almost late for this. I was at the DMV for an <laughs> hour. And then, of course, I didn't have the one thing that they needed. And in that moment, as you were saying, I'm, I'm, Lord, I'm your ambassador right now. So every other person's mm -hmm. leaving out of here in a huff and angry. And I can say thank you. And that... That is part of my job. And that is, to me, that's sacred work. Yeah. That's not just my everyday life and then my church. This is a spiritual service of worship. And I, I just love your perspective on this. So thank you. You know, you, you mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned that I got fired from Parker Brothers. So the good news, I was CEO by the time I was 33. By the time I was 35, I'd been fired. That's a long story that I won't get into. But I think what God was trying to say to me in that quote that you read from the book is, Rich, I want to take you out of the game for a little bit, and, and I want to put you on the bench, and the coach needs to do some work with you because, you see, 
I was compartmentalizing my work. You know, it was all about when I went to work and all the things I could do and the success that I had went to my head. And here I am, 33, you know, boy wonder, CEO of this, you know, big company. And uh, what God was doing with me is saying, he was dealing with that why question. Why are you doing what you're doing? Because I want to send you into the workplace as my ambassador. Your why has to be about me, not about you, right? Mm. So uh, if you're going to be my ambassador, you have to completely change the way you look at your work, you know, that that you're there to represent me. You're there as my ambassador. You're there to do my bidding. And, you know, I, I talk about this in the book. You know, I, I was raised Catholic. And when I was a little child, we had to memorize our catechism uh, questions and answers. And one of the questions was, why did God make me? You know, little kids have to answer, why did God make me? And the answer we had to memorize was to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world. So think about how simple that is. God didn't make me to be successful. He didn't make me to earn a lot of money. He didn't make me to have a career in law or medicine or business. He made me to know him, love him, and serve him in this world. And I can do that as a business executive. I can do that as a teacher. I can do that as an elected official or an electrician. I can know God, love him, and serve him in this world, regardless of my station in life. And that is the that was the aha for me in my 30s when I realized that I had it all backwards. I was a Christian on the weekends, right? Uh, and I person at work, but it was really about my success, my achievement, you know, my goals for myself, as opposed to saying, how can I be a better ambassador for Christ uh, in this workplace? So if someone was with you at Parker Brothers at 33, and then was with you at age 40, when you've kind of had these aha moments, what would they have practically noticed differently about the way that you lead? Well, I think, first of all, a lot more humility, because uh, I, not, I not only got fired once, I got fired twice in the same year. <laughs> That's in the book, too. Repotted. Uh, I think you said yeah, I, well, I got re I got repotted. repotted. I had some of my roots <laughs> trimmed, too. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think I was a lot more humble. You know, when you're if you've never been fired, there's a there's a phrase I like, never trust a leader without a limp. If you if, if as a leader, you've never had any hardship, you, you've never been fired, you've never faced a challenge where you failed. Um, uh, you know, you learn so much in failure. You learn so much uh, from a trauma in your life. Uh, and you grow as a person. And, you know, after my time in the wilderness there in my 30s, I was much more caring and sympathetic as a leader. You know, I was much more concerned about somebody. If I had to fire somebody or do a layoff, I was much more sensitive to, wow, this is really hard for people to go through and um, uh, and much more humble about my job. Right. Like, Lord, I'm here because you put me here. I, you know, I don't deserve to be here. Uh, I'm not the smartest guy in the room with all the answers. I just want to be faithful uh, in this place uh, for you today. And so that's what I tried uh, to be in my 40s that I wasn't maybe in my early 30s. But. That's so I'm 32. And one of the thoughts I had as I was reading your section, so like you come up to age 33, did you ever think in the midst of that going back, okay, well, I'm, my life's looking a little bit like Jesus here. <laughs> where because I, I've talked to young leaders that kind of would, you know, and I've had phases in my life where I've kind of thought, okay, I think I see what God's doing. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wait, uh, man, I really don't see what he's doing during this season. 
And so how long during that season of like 33 to Dave mentioned 40, how long did it take you to kind of take a step back and say, okay, I think I see what God's trying to do. Yeah. I, yeah, I want to bring out the word surrender, which is the, mm. the first of my 17 values in the book. I have a chapter on each of these 17. One that your wife told you not to include, huh? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, the first, the, the first three chapters are surrender, sacrifice, and trust. And she said, that's probably not the best way to get people to buy a leadership book. You should start out with success, wealth, and fame, you know, something like that. But, um, but yeah, surrender. So this whole dance I was doing with God in my thirties was really about surrender. You know, that when we become believers, we're called to surrender, right? Not my will, Lord, but your will. And I invite you into my life. Uh, I surrender before you. That's kind of part of the Christian story that we surrender. We repent. We, we ask for forgiveness. We, uh, we embrace, you know, God's uh, offer uh, to forgive our sins. And so we're surrendering before him. But what I've learned is that surrender is not a one-time event. You know, it's surrender is kind of a daily lifelong process because there are always things in our life we haven't surrendered, you know, and for me, probably in my 30s, I had not fully surrendered my career and my financial insecurity that came with me, you know, from childhood. I still felt financially insecure, even when I was a CEO. And my kids used to say, you know, we'd go to McDonald's and I'd say, nobody order a drink. You know, there's a drinking fountain here and they make all their money on the drinks. And if five of you ordered a drink, you know, it'd be $10, you know, and, uh, and like my, my, my eight-year-old is saying, but dad, you're like the CEO, you know, you're driving a Jaguar. We can't have a Coke, you know, it's, but I had that financial insecurity. I, I had that, you know, you never know. I mean, I might need that money someday. I, I might get fired. I might. <laughs> so God had to deal with some of this stuff in my life, you know, at that, uh, at that time of life. And I had to keep surrendering. I had to surrender my financial insecurity. I had to surrender, um, uh, just, you know, my ambitions and, and my, you know, what I wanted for my life, what I wanted for my career, I had to surrender those things. And I think it's only because of those experiences I had that I ultimately could come to world vision. So you will know, maybe talk about that, but a number of years later, yeah, I mean, that, how did you, you know, end I, up at world vision? That's <clears throat> yeah. So after being fired twice, right. I, I after almost a year of unemployment, uh, which was really hard to be unemployed and you start to lose your sense of who am I? And of course, what the Lord was saying is I've got you right where I want you. You're, you're my disciple. You're my follower. That's who you are. That's your identity. You're not Mr. CEO. You're not Mr. Big shot. <clears throat> and once I got through, my wife said, I hope you, whatever God's trying to teach you, I hope you learn it quickly and get back to work. Cause we had a mortgage and five kids and everything. And, um, so finally, I get back to work and I, I get a I get a job at Lenox, China, the fine China and crystal maker. And I am so grateful to be back at work. I am so grateful to be there. And uh, it was like the Lord restored me after, you know, after kind of experiencing the plagues of Job in my life for a while. I finally get restored. And and I had this incredible 11 year run at Lenox. I became a division president and a group president and uh, chief operating officer and then president and CEO during that time. My salary's growing, my financial insecurity is going away because I'm making a lot more money. And then in 1998, after 11 years at Lenox, I get this call from a headhunter saying I'm representing the Christian charity World Vision 
and they're looking for a new CEO. And I wanted to talk to you about that job. And to be honest, I knew World Vision. My wife and I were donors to World Vision, but my heart sunk because I thought, well, you know, you always took calls from recruiters because it might be a bigger job with more money and more stock options and all that kind of stuff. And I knew that this was not going to be, it might be a bigger job, but it's not going to be stock options and more money and all of that. And so uh, anyways, that phone call changed my life. And of course, my first reaction was I'm totally unqualified for this job. I, you do know I'm selling luxury goods to the wealthy. I've never been to Africa. I've never been to Latin America, parts of Asia where, you know, the poorest of the poor live. <clears throat> I have no fundraising experience. I have no theology degree. And this is an organization that has to raise like $3 million a day, every day. And uh, it's a Christian organization. I, I felt like I had no qualifications for this job, but for whatever reason, and I think it was, you know, God's hand operating, the recruiter didn't give up. He said, I just really think this is, you know, he said, the Holy Spirit's telling me, I think you may be the person we're looking for. And, uh, you know, I said, do you say that to all the candidates that you talk to, the Holy Spirit's telling you? So, but to go from Lennox to World Vision involved surrender, right? It involved a 75% pay cut with five kids, all had to go through college. It involved selling our dream house in Pennsylvania where we live. We had to sell it. It involved quitting my career at Lennox, resigning. <clears throat> it involved moving 2,500 miles away from all of our friends to the Seattle area. And what the Lord was saying to me is, have we got this right now, Rich, that it's not about you? It's about my will for your life. It's not your will, but my will. Will you do this for me? Will you will you make this sacrifice? Will you surrender um, your career uh, and your financial insecurity to me? And it was like what he'd been preparing me for all those years before. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. But I think God is often laying groundwork in our life to prepare us for something he has for us in the future. So anyways, that's the, the short version of a very long story, which is probably too long for the podcast. But No, it's great. You know, when you talk about when you arrived at World Vision, now you talked about some of your struggles, but one of the things you mentioned when you first walked in and then you bring, and I would see it as you bring all the experience that God has prepared you with up until this point, and you bring this in what some look at is, okay, he's bringing this corporate mindset into a nonprofit, and you've received a little bit of pushback at the beginning. Yeah. Looking back, how did God prepare you for that moment? And I think in the next decade, if I'm correct on this, uh, World Vision, their income or their, what they brought in tripled over the next, uh, the next decade. So mm -hmm. um, how, looking back, how did God prepare you for leading in that moment? You know, like I just said that, you know, God lays kind of track in our lives and we don't really know why he's doing it um, until years later when we realize what God's intent was. And I, I always like to look at the life of Moses. So you, just, just a brief snapshot, you know, Moses spent the first 40 years of his life growing up in the house of the Pharaoh of Egypt. He'd been rescued from the, you know, the bulrushes. He was raised in the house of Pharaoh. And what did he learn in those 40 years? He learned the way of power. Uh, he learned leadership. I think we're told he built cities and led armies. And, you know, he, he had these leadership responsibilities as an adopted son of the Pharaoh so he understood the whole governing body of Egypt. Then he murders uh, one of the overseers 
and gets banished from Egypt. And the next 40 years, he is in the wilderness, right? He becomes a shepherd. He settles down and gets married. He lives out in the countryside in the wilderness, basically tending his sheep for 40 years. And then God appears to him at age 80 in the burning bush and says, I have a job for you, Moses. I want you to go and confront the Pharaoh and lead my people to the promised land. And of course, there's this whole conversation. Moses says, I can't do it. I'm not smart enough. I'm not eloquent enough. I don't want to do it. Please don't make me do it. But finally, Moses surrenders and says, okay, I'll do it. And, uh, and we're we know the story. We've seen the movie, you know, the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the march through the wilderness, 40 years living off manna in the wilderness. And he leads them to the brink of the promised land. And then he dies. But look at that resume. You know, who better... What better preparation could you have had to confront Pharaoh than somebody that had spent 40 years growing up in the royal courts of Egypt, who understood how it worked? What better uh, preparation could you have had for leading several hundred thousand people through the wilderness than to be a shepherd who understands how to lead sheep through the dangers of the wilderness and live off the land? And, and, uh, and so Moses had the perfect resume for what God had called him to do. Now, in my case, um, World Vision needed business experience and skills, right? Uh, it was a large ministry. It was about $300 million a year when I joined. That's a lot of money for a, a Christian ministry. And, and of course, you need very professional management of that money, you know, professional management of the marketing and the IT and all of the functions of that organization. And so God had prepared me with 25 years of business training and background in large companies. So I, I was able to bring all of those skill sets and that learning uh, to a Christian ministry. Um, uh, now, I, I'm, I'm the first to say that I had to really kind of rethink my leadership style at World Vision, a Christian ministry where you start every day in devotions and prayer with your staff. You have chapel on Wednesday. Um, uh, it's just a very different culture. And so you have to really adapt to a, a different culture, a Christian culture. But, but all of that was preparation. So, you know, the, to, to the people listening right now, you may be in a job you can't stand. You, you may be in a job that you hate. That may be the very job that God has put into your life to prepare you for something he has in mind 20 years from now. And you won't see it until you realize 20 years from now, wow, that experience I had at this company or that company or this organization was really tremendous preparation for what I'm doing now. Wow. And so, you know, you may not be in your dream wow. job, but maybe it's a stepping stone that God's taking you through toward uh, more of a dream job for you. That's, that's such a great word. I had another question, but we're just going to leave it right at that because yeah. I, I think that's such a powerful, like, Dave, I just think of people that are listening, watching, right? And yeah. I'm guessing a good percentage of them, because we speak to a younger audience, right? are probably in some form of job where they think, okay, this isn't it, right? I want to be mm -hmm. somewhere else. And man, what a powerful, powerful word. So if, if people want to get familiar with your work, where's the best place they can find you? Um, and where would be the best place they should start? Well, I'm on Twitter these days. Uh, that's about my only social media <laughs> presence to speak of. But, um, but I think through my books, you know, uh, in 2009, I wrote The Hole in Our Gospel, uh, which was Christian Book of the Year uh, in that year. And um, it's really, it was really a book about my World Vision experience and uh, understanding poverty and justice issues uh, 
from a biblical perspective. Um, so that's a great way to learn a little bit more about, you know, how God prepared me and used me uh, and what I learned at World Vision. <clears throat> and then, of course, my new book, Lead Like It Matters to God, if you're struggling with some of these leadership issues or how do I integrate my faith with my work, I think, you know, the new book is a good place to start. Um, because what I wanted this book to be was uh, almost a devotional book for Christian leaders or Christians in the workplace to say, uh, my presence in that workplace does matter to God. And if I bring God to work with me every day, faithfully in my character, uh, by exhibiting the character of Christ in my life, God will use me to do fruitful things in my workplace and to have a positive impact on my coworkers and uh, to make a difference uh, for yeah. his kingdom. So anyways, but that's, Love you it. know, yeah, you can Google me. There's a lot of various, you know, videos on YouTube that I've done over the years, but yeah. Thank you for joining the podcast today. A guest is Richard Stearns, uh, former president of World Vision. And uh, what, a, what an honor uh, to have you on. Thanks, guys. Great talking to you today. You've been listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. For more info on this program, simply visit our website, themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com.